We're continuing today our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, John chapter 6, we'll be picking up there in just a few moments in verse 22. Now, there's a certain activity that most people will participate in between 20 and 25 times every week. It's an activity that you probably participate in between 20 and 25 times every week. In fact, you probably participate in this activity once already today. You'll likely participate in it a couple more times before the end of today. It's an activity that almost is always a part of every party, every date, every special holiday. What am I talking about? I'm talking about eating food. Amen. Well, Alice likes her food, evidently. So food is an Im- <laughs> food is an important part of our lives, right? It's an important part of our lives. There are entire books and websites and TV channels dedicated to food. So chew on this for a moment. No matter how poor you think you are, you enjoy a luxury that several billion people on the earth don't enjoy. No matter how poor you think you are, you are surrounded by food, right? Here in America, we are surrounded by food. You don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from, but it wasn't like that in first century Israel. Many people in first century Israel, they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have a McDonald's or a Del Taco on every corner. They didn't have homeless shelters. They didn't have food kitchens. They didn't have community food pantries. They didn't have Grubhub. They didn't have any of those things that we have today. So in the early verses of John chapter 6, when Jesus performed a miracle and fed 5,000 men, we find in another gospel account there were women and children there as well. So Jesus likely fed around 10,000 people with five little biscuits and two little sardines. And when we read that, sometimes we don't stop to think that this could have been the only time in a long time that a lot of people in that crowd went to bed with a full stomach. Because that wasn't common in those days to eat your fill. They would eat what's available. They would eat whatever's there when they did have food available. But they rarely went to bed full. So with this huge deal in mind that Jesus fills up some 10,000 people, we shouldn't be too surprised this morning as we go to the middle part of John chapter 6 and discover that the people come back to Jesus the next day and they want him to feed them again. They were full the night before, but what happens when you wake up the next morning after having your fill the night before? Funny thing that way, isn't it? Your stomach starts to rumble a little bit again. You start to think, you know what, I I thought I wouldn't be able to eat for a week, but I'm hungry again. And so that's happening to these people. Yesterday, they had had their fill. Today, they wanted Jesus to feed them again. So let's pick pick up here in verse 22 of John chapter 6. Please say amen if you're there. There we are. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. Here we go. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum 
in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. May God bless us as we study his word together today. Amen. Amen. And most importantly, apply his word to our lives today. According to Matthew 14:22, after Jesus had fed the 5,000 and the 12 baskets full of leftovers were collected, Jesus immediately made his 12 disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee while he dismissed the crowd. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Well, as Jesus was busy praying, many people who he had dismissed from that crowd refused to be dismissed. We find out here in these verses we just read that some of those people didn't get dismissed. Jesus might have dismissed them, but they refused to go. And so they spent the night there in those open fields waiting to see Jesus again the next day. So it's a crowd by the next day, I'm guessing, of a few hundred people. And they don't see Jesus anywhere. They know that he went off into the mountain area to pray, but he's not coming down from the mountains. And those that were standing watch throughout the night, they didn't see Jesus come down in the middle of the night. And so they're looking for Jesus and they can't find him. So they come to the conclusion that he and his disciples had crossed somehow in a boat during that storm to the other side. And so verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, They asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? I think a better question would have been, Rabbi, how did you get there? How did you get here? Wouldn't that have been a fun question for Jesus to ask? Well, you know, I I didn't want to take the long way because of the storm and all. It would have been nine miles walking around uh, the outer banks of the Sea of Galilee to get here. So, you know what? I took the shortcut. I just walked on water and came on over last night. They would have loved that answer. And. So they didn't ask that question, though. The question they ask is, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, take a look at Jesus' response in verse 26. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Interesting. Jesus ignores the question they ask and talks about something different entirely. The crowd asked the question when he had gotten there. Jesus answers by addressing the motive in their hearts for looking for him in the first place. A day earlier, the crowd had followed Jesus for a different reason. If you go back to verse 2 of John chapter 6, you'll see that when they showed up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the day that he feeds the 10,000 people, You'll find out that in John 6, verse 2, the crowd gathered to meet Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee because they saw the miraculous signs that he had performed on the sick. But here in verse 26, the following day, Jesus points out that their motive for following has changed in the last 24 hours. No longer are they following him because of the miraculous signs. Jesus says, now you've tasted and seen that my food is good. And the only reason you're chasing after me today is because you're hungry again. You want some more free food. They were full when they went to bed last night, but it's a new day and they're hungry again. Remember what God revealed to the prophet Samuel in 
1 Samuel 16, verse 7. One of our teenagers, Stevie, was teaching our other teens on Friday night about this passage in 1 Samuel 16. It's a great verse. As Samuel is choosing the next king of Israel, remember, he goes to the oldest of Jesse, Eliab, and he sees him and says, Surely this is the next king of Israel. And God tells him, Don't look at the outward appearance. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Amen? Amen. Jesus says what he says here in verse 26, because he can see right through them. He knows the motives of their hearts. Amen? Amen. Do you know the motives of anyone's heart? No, I can't do that. You can't do that. But Jesus, since he's the son of God, he can do that. William Barclay, I think, says it so well. He writes, Jesus went straight to the heart of the matter. You have seen, he said, wonderful things. You have seen how God's grace enabled the crowd to be fed. Your thoughts ought to have been turned to the God who did these things. But instead, so that you're you're thinking about bread. It's as if Jesus said, you cannot think about your souls for thinking of your stomachs. It's pretty deep, isn't it? Pretty sad, too. What was true of so many people in Jesus' day is true of so many of us today. Many of us cannot think about our eternal souls because we're too busy thinking about our stomachs. Isn't that true? We're so busy thinking about our own five senses and our own hungers and our own passions. So often we don't spend much time at all thinking about our souls. Fourth century church leader John Chrysostom said it so simply. He wrote, Men are nailed to the things of this life. Wow. I need to ask you today, are you nailed to the things of this life? Do you spend time on a regular basis thinking about your eternal soul or are you too busy thinking about your stomach? What Jesus says next in verse 27, I think is really important. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Think for a minute about what Jesus is telling this crowd. He's he's telling them to stop wasting their time and energy chasing after stomach food that is only edible for a short time. If the people are going to chase after food, Jesus tells them, chase after soul food, right? Chase after soul food. And I'm not talking about... Grits and gravy. I'm not talking about collard greens. I'm not talking about fried chicken. I'm talking about soul food. Amen. Amen. Church. Amen. Amen. How many of you agree that Sunday is the best day of the week? Why is Sunday the best day of the week? Because on Sunday we get to gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we get to be with each other on a Sunday morning. And we get to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords together on a Sunday morning. And every single week we come together, we have the privilege of opening God's Word together and taking in some amazingly good soul food. This is the best soul food out there. I kind of like collard greens once in a while. I had a fried chicken sandwich at Popeye's on Friday, and that was pretty amazing. But let me tell you, this soul food is so much better. Amen? It's so much better. What a privilege God has given us. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to spend your time and energy chasing after food, chase after the food that God has created for the soul. It never spoils. It doesn't perish. 
and it nourishes for all eternity. Now, just to make sure no one misunderstands what Jesus is saying here, the Bible is very clear that we need to work for the physical food that we eat as well. Paul says it very simply over in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He writes, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. So the Bible is very clear that you and I must work for the food that we eat. No slothfulness, no shirking our responsibilities, no mooching off others on a long-term basis. Here in John 6, Jesus is in no way disparaging putting in a hard day's work to put food on the table for your family. But he is making it clear that our hearts should never chase after food. Say that with me. Our hearts should never chase after food. Our hearts were created to what? To chase after God. Physical food can sustain your body today, but God's spiritual food can sustain your spirit through all eternity. And Jesus makes it clear in verse 27 that he himself is the supplier of this spiritual food. What what Jesus says to this hungry crowd here in John 6 is pretty similar to what he said to the woman at the well there in John chapter 4. Remember, he says to the woman at the well there in Samaria, if you knew who it was who asked you for water, you would ask him for living water. Because I will cause within you a spring of living water to rise up even to eternal life. He says a similar thing here in John chapter 6. He says, if you knew who you were talking to here, I could give you a food, a soul food, a spiritual food that lasts through all eternity. Now, take a closer look at the final sentence in verse 27. On him, referring to Jesus Christ. God the Father has placed his seal of approval. On him, Jesus Christ, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Jesus' day, when you had a dignitary that wanted to verify a document and, in a sense, sign off on it, he wouldn't sign his signature. They didn't do that back then. Instead, he would put his seal on there, either a wax or a clay seal, that they would seal on that document, and that says that dignitary has signed off on it. It is authorized. It is valid. And so Jesus is saying that God the Father has placed his seal of approval on him. You think of an example today. If you were to pull out your real California ID, how do you tell the difference between a real California ID and a fake one? Now, I'm going to cover up my picture here because I don't want to scare the children. So how do you know that this is a real California ID and I didn't just buy this for 20 bucks off a guy on the street with a trench coat? How do you know that? Well, you can talk to our good friends at the DMV. How many of you love the DMV? Praise God for the DMV. One person. Okay, maybe two. We go to our good friends at the DMV and you can go to DMV.gov online and they will tell you how to tell the difference between a real California ID and a fake one. And their simple answer is, the seal of California in the upper right-hand corner. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a golden bear with a white star in the middle. That's how you can tell the difference between a real ID and a fake one. And so similarly in those days, if you didn't have the seal, it wasn't valid. And so Jesus is saying God has placed his seal of approval on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ And everyone around him there, when he was baptized, heard the voice from the Father in heaven say, This is my beloved Son. In him I am well pleased. Seal. God the Father makes it clear that Jesus Christ 
is the only way to heaven. Seal. Jesus Christ, according to the Father, is the one that doesn't just bring us food for our bodies, but brings us the eternal soul food that will last through all eternity. Seal. God the Father makes it clear in the Word of God that He approves 100% everything that Jesus says. He approves 100% all that Jesus does. He has received the full and complete endorsement of God the Father. Seal. Listen to Him, the Father says, because Jesus speaks the words of God. Amazing, isn't it? Jesus has received that seal of approval from God the Father. Well, let's pick up where we left off in verse 28 here in John chapter 6. So we pick up in verse 28. We read, they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gave me and gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Isn't that good? If you look back in verse 27, Jesus shares a paradox. He says, work for food that endures to eternal life. You may not have noticed that paradox when I first read it a few minutes ago, but that's pretty interesting. Work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. That's a paradox because usually when we work for something, when we earn something, it's given to us not as a gift, but as a wage, right? So there's kind of a dichotomy there. It's a paradox. If we've worked for it, if we've paid for it, it's not a gift. So as the crowd responds to Jesus' paradox in verse 28, it's clear that the people are fixated on the work that he talked about and have completely overlooked the gift that he mentioned. So they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? And in verse 29, Jesus shares some of the simplest yet profound theology in all the book of John. He simply says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Say that with me. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. One more time, because I don't think it's sinking in. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, let me tell you, if this isn't blowing your mind and knocking your socks off, then it hasn't sunk in. This is so countercultural. This is so counterintuitive. 
It blows my mind when I try to wrap my mind around it. This crowd is doing what most people in our culture do. Jesus, I want to be right with God. I want to make peace with God. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven someday. Who wants to go to hell? Anyone that really understands hell would never want to go there. Hell's the worst. It's beyond the worst. And so I want to go to heaven someday. So Jesus, just tell me what I need to do to get on God's good side. Just tell me what I need to do to make it to heaven. Now, when we ask these questions, we're expecting Jesus to give us some sort of to-do list. Well, here's what I, I need you to do. I need you to read your Bible and pray every day. Okay, I can do that. Check. Okay, next I need you to be in church every single Sunday. Check. I can do that. Okay, and next I need you to walk a hundred old ladies across the street. Okay, I can do that. Check. And so we want him to give us this to-do list. That type of to-do list makes sense to us. After all, that's what all the other religions do, right? If you want to be a good Muslim, all you have to do is carry out the five pillars of Islam. They're easy enough to look up. Just do a Google search, five pillars of Islam, and that'll tell you how to be a good Muslim. Just do those five things. That's why a lot of people are buying into Islam hook, line, and sinker because it's easy. It's simple. It's a formula. Just do these five things and you're good. If you want to be a good Mormon, it's not super complicated. If you want to be a good Mormon, you don't even need a button-up white shirt. If you want to be a good Mormon, just make sure you're going to church. Make sure you tithe 10% because they'll check up on you. Make sure you tithe your 10% to the church at all times. Make sure you're going on your two-year mission. That's a, another way to kind of seal the deal as being a good Mormon. Go on your two-year mission. Knock on lots of doors. And if you're a woman, you've got to make sure you marry a Mormon man. That's the formula. Not too difficult. If you want to be a good Jehovah's Witness, not terribly difficult. You just need to, as a good Jehovah's Witness, make sure you go to church three times a week. That's how often they want you to be there. Three times a week, you've got to make sure that you refuse to celebrate birthdays and holidays. And you've got to make sure you hand out a whole lot of Watchtower magazines. That's the formula. And so we get to Christianity and Jesus doesn't give them this laundry list of things to do. He doesn't give them a to-do list. He simply says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Blows my mind. That's it? That's it. We're not much different than the Jewish crowd wanting this list. But amazingly, Jesus just says, believe in me. Translation, the only work that matters is belief in me. The work of God is to put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And once you do that, Jesus says, I'll do the heavy lifting for you. Just blows my mind. The crowd seems to have understood the gist of what Jesus was saying because they respond in verse 30 with a question. What miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you think the crowd here is trying to trick Jesus into feeding them again? I think they did too. But I think they're just trying to get Jesus to feed them again. Oh, okay, Jesus, you know, what you did yesterday, that was some impressive stuff. We're not going to deny it. You know, that whole thing, taking five biscuits and a couple sardines and multiplying it, we've never seen anything like We've never even heard of anything like that. Man, Aesop's fables, man, they don't even say something that cool. That was amazing. Now, we're not, we're not denying it was not amazing. It, it was amazing, Jesus, but today is a new day. 
If you want us to truly believe that you are who you say you are, it's time to step up your game. You gave us bread to eat yesterday. Now give us the manna from heaven. Most of you remember the story of the manna in Exodus chapter 16. Moses is leading his people through the wilderness for 40 years and they start getting hungry. And so God answers their prayer to to meet their hunger pains by giving them manna. And remember, they wake up one morning, they go outside their tents and there's this bread, this flaky bread stuff on the ground. They'd never seen bread quite like that. And so manna literally means what is it? They didn't know at first it was bread. They, what is it? They're picking it up and tearing it apart. And wow. And they find out this is God's bread. He's given you. This is his bread from heaven. So ever since that time that God gave manna in the wilderness, from that point on, the Jewish people, when they spoke of manna, they were saying that is the bread from heaven. That is the bread from God. And the Jewish rabbis had begun to teach that when the Messiah comes, one of the things the Christ will do to prove that he is the Christ is he will do what Moses did. He will give bread from heaven. He will bring the manna back and start feeding the masses. And so they bought into this wives tale of the rabbis. And so they say, you know what? If you want to prove that you are the Messiah, that you are the Christ, that you are the son of the living God, then give us manna. Give us the bread from heaven. Give us the bread from God. Jesus responds in verses 32 and 33 by correcting two big errors in their theology. They were implying in their question that Moses was the one that had brought the Israelites bread. And Jesus says, no, it wasn't Moses who gave the Israelites bread from heaven. It was actually God. But then he corrects a greater mistake they made. The more important thing that he points out is that true bread from heaven isn't physical food for the stomach. The true bread from heaven is a person who brings spiritual food for the soul. Amen. Amen. And that's, of course, Jesus. In case anyone wondered who Jesus is referring to, he says it point blank in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. A few weeks ago, I pointed out to you that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, never record a single time when Jesus spoke these three words, I am God. He never speaks those three exact words, I am God. But we know that in the Old Testament, the holiest name of God was Yahweh. Yahweh is the third person of the holiest name of God. So when you refer to God, With his holiest name, you refer to him as Yahweh. Some people mispronounce that as Jehovah, but Jehovah and Yahweh, same word, same name. But when God speaks of himself as Yahweh, Yahweh in the first person is I am. So Yahweh is like he is. I am is God referring to himself in that holiest name. And so we know that Jesus never says I am God. But does Jesus ever refer to himself by the holiest name of God? Does he ever refer to himself as I am? And the answer is yes, he does it a number of times. In fact, here in the book of John, there are seven different times that Jesus refers to himself as I am. The first of those is here in John six thirty five. He says, I am the bread of of life and the other mentionings of being the great I am fall between chapters 8 and 15 in chapters 8 and 9 Jesus says I am the light of the world in chapter 10 he says I am the gate and I am the good shepherd in chapter 11 he says I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 14 he says I am the way the truth and the life and in chapter 15 he says I am the vine and you are the branches 
So seven different times, Jesus is making it clear that he is the great I am. Now, some might look at that and say, well, he didn't end the sentence with I am. He says, I am the bread of life, or I am the gate, or I am the way, the truth, and the life. He wasn't really claiming to be the great self-existent one, God Almighty, Jehovah Yahweh. And so for those that think that Jesus isn't referring to himself as I am, John 8, 58 will prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Notice what Jesus says in John 8, 58. Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am, period. Now, did they understand what he was saying? You bet they did, because we see in the very next verse in John eight fifty nine, they pick up stones to stone him to death because they accused him of blasphemy. They knew without a doubt he was claiming to be God himself. The Jewish leaders, thinking that he had committed blasphemy, were going to kill him, but Jesus slipped away from the crowd. In John 6, 40, Jesus says to this crowd, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus makes it clear that it is God the Father's will that everyone turn to Jesus, believe in him as Savior and Lord, and be saved. And everyone who does believe in Jesus we'll get to enjoy eternal life in heaven. Amen? Amen? Be with Him forever and ever and ever. It's going to be awesome. Let me give you quickly in closing three life lessons that we can pull from this great passage today. First of all, life lesson number one. Your old nature craves physical food to the exclusion of spiritual food. So keep your priorities straight. Feed your spirit first before you feed your face. Amen? Read that with me. Your old nature craves physical food to the exclusion of spiritual food. So keep your priorities straight. Feed your spirit before you feed your face. Now, Jesus urged the crowd in Capernaum to stop working for food that perishes, but instead to work for food that endures. Eating and preparing food can be a beautiful thing, but it can also be a time sapper that pulls you away from the word of God. Now, some of us have health issues and we can't fast. Most of us don't have health issues that keep us from fasting. I would encourage all of you that don't have a health issue that prevents you from fasting to take a stab at intermittent fasting. It's been all the rage in health circles in recent years because doctors and, and, and health scientists have discovered there are a ton of benefits of intermittent fasting. An easy way to do it is you stop eating at 7 p.m. And, oops, there's my communion cup. That's why we pass the trash cans. And so the easy way, you stop eating at 7 p.m., don't eat again until mid-morning the next day. And so that's about 14 hours, okay? And so that's an easy way. Thank you, brother. That's an easy way to do a small fast. We found that physically when people do this, something interesting happens during that period where you have that intermittent fasting. Uh, we not only begin to burn fat, but our body also will begin to rid itself of toxic and dead cells. Sometimes we have cells that are dead that are do doing no good to the body, and they just hang around and are kind of like parasitic cells that pull from the healthy cells. We find that during periods of fasting, the body expels them. Isn't that interesting? We find that fat is burned. We find that oftentimes over time, uh, the metabolism will be increased as well. So there's some wonderful physical benefits of intermittent fasting, but there's some wonderful spiritual benefits, even more important for us as Christians, right? Because what happens when we tell our body, I know you want to eat a snack at 8.30 or 9 p.m. before you go to bed, but you're not going to have it. 
and you wake up first thing in the morning, you feel like feeding your face, and you say, no, I'm going to spend some time in the Word. What are we saying? Our spirit is saying to our flesh, you are not in charge. Our spirit is saying to the flesh, you can rumble, and you can grumble, and you can churn all you want, but you ain't eating until I tell you you're eating. And so when we make sure our spirit is out in front and our body is lagging behind, that's the way Jesus wants it. So often in our culture today, because we're surrounded by food, our stomach is out in front and our stomach is calling the shots. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Do not let your stomach be out in front. You make sure your spirit is out in front and you take care of that body. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying starve yourself. Not saying go 40 days and 40 nights. I wouldn't recommend that for anyone except for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Okay? They did it. Praise God. I don't recommend it for anyone else. But short periods can be very helpful where our spirit tells our body, you are not in charge. Here in John 6, the people who came to Jesus were physically hungry. But notice that Jesus didn't satisfy their physical cravings. He didn't feed them food. He let them leave hungry. Why? Because he had much more important food to give them. On this day, he was feeding their spirit. The day before, he fed them bread and fish. On this day, he gave them greater food. He fed their spirits. So, before you feed your face, make sure you feed your spirit. I encourage you first thing in the morning to spend some time with God before anything ever enters your mouth. Amen? Amen. Life lesson number two. Grace and truth both come through Jesus Christ And you need them both. Read this with me. Grace and truth both come through Jesus Christ. And you need them both. Now, why did Jesus feed the 5,000 on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? Well, he did it because he had compassion on the crowds, right? But there were another reason we talked about last week. The walk on water passage. Jesus fed them on the other side. Allowed the disciples to distribute that bread and that fish. Because Jesus was teaching them a lesson they needed to apply a few hours later when they would be straining at the oars. Right? Right. But there's even another reason that Jesus fed them. He did it to show the crowd God's grace so that they would be more open to receiving God's truth the following day. His grace included physical bread, but the truth was what they needed most was the eternal bread of life, Jesus Christ. And because he fed them the day before, many of them were more open to receiving the words of life on the following day. So think about this. Over the years, you've opened your hands and you've accepted many gracious gifts from God. You've accepted from him your health in your home, in your car, in your family, in your job. But let me ask you, have you rejected the truth of Jesus? Namely, that putting your faith in Him is the greatest thing you could ever do this side of heaven. You've got to put your faith in Him. None of your good works will matter on Judgment Day if you haven't placed your belief and your trust in Jesus Christ. You can't go to church enough times to atone for your sin. You can't give away enough money to escape God's judgment. You can't walk enough old ladies across the street to earn your place in heaven. You have to believe in Jesus. That is the greatest work of God that you could ever do. Finally, that leads us beautifully into life lesson number three. If you want to be right with God and make it to heaven one day, there's only one good work that God finds acceptable. Believe in Jesus and keep believing in Jesus. Say that with me. If you want to be right with God and make it to heaven one day, 
There's only one good work that God finds acceptable. Believe in Jesus and keep believing in Jesus. Don't forget what Hebrews 11:6 says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he richly rewards those who seek him. Pleasing God begins with believing in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And once you're saved, you can only continue pleasing God by continuing to believe in Jesus. That's your number one job as a Christian. Let me just put it point blank for you. Your number one job as a Christian is to believe in Jesus, period. Say that with me. Your number one job as a Christian is to believe in Jesus. Tell the person next to you, your number one job as a Christian is to believe in Jesus. And once again, if this doesn't blow some brain cells, then it's not sinking in. This is crazy countercultural. This is crazy different from every other religion out there. Your job, number one, is to believe in Jesus. And you know what's crazy? So many of us believe in Jesus for salvation. We believe in Jesus to snatch our wicked souls out of the grubby hand of Satan. We trust Jesus to rescue us from the grip of the enemy and to save our souls. And so many Christians every day after that will say, God, I've got this one handed. I'm going to trust in my own wisdom. I'm going to trust in my own strength. How stupid is that? We trusted in him for eternity But we don't trust him to help us pay the bills as they roll in. But you know what? If you're doing your very best and you're working hard as he's called you to work in the job that he's provided for you and you're not blowing your money, doing crazy stuff and frivolous stuff. If you're giving back to God and putting him first in your finances, if you're living the way he's called you to live, you're going to church, you're reading the word, you're praying. You don't have to worry about all this stuff. Jesus Christ will do the heavy lifting for you. He did the heavy lifting for your salvation. Why do we not trust him to do the heavy lifting every point after our salvation? I read yesterday about a pastor in his earlier years. He had a a hankering to learn how to fly. And so he was taking flight lessons and he had been having a few lessons. And so the, the instructor wanted to take him into some more difficult techniques. So they got up to a pretty high altitude for that small little plane. And the instructor told him to go into a nosedive. And to come down at a steep descent. And so he did. He took the plane into a deep descent. But after a few seconds, the engine stalled. And the plane began to spin out of control. The pastor turns to the instructor in a panic and says, Do something! Do something! And the instructor sat there like this. They're getting closer and closer and closer to the ground. The instructor didn't move. Didn't say a word. After a few seconds of panic, that pilot grabbed the wheel tried to restart and re-engage the engines. They re-engaged and he pulled it up to a safe altitude again. And once they were out of danger, he turned to that instructor and he chewed him out. What are you doing? And the instructor very calmly responded, there is not a single situation that you can put this plane in that I can't get you out of. Just trust me. If you want to learn how to fly a plane, Take it up to the altitude you were at before and do it again. And the pastor was saying that when the instructor said that to him, immediately God's spirit spoke to his heart. God says much the same thing to us. 
We get into these situations where we find ourselves in a nosedive and we scream at him and we yell at him and we want to just push him aside and say, I'm going to do it on my own this time. And Jesus so gently says, there is not a single situation you can put yourself in that I cannot get you out of if you will just trust me. Don't do what so many Christians do. Pushing Jesus aside and trusting and leaning on your own understanding. You lean on him every day. You do the part he's called you to do. And you allow him to do the heavy lifting from there. Whatever you're going through, no situation is too hard for Jesus to get you out of. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and thank you for the wonderful gift of life. The wonderful gift of forgiveness. Thank you for your word. I pray that if there's anyone here today who has never accepted you as Savior and Lord, that they would accept you today. Asking you to come into their lives and saying, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Please forgive me. Please wash me clean. Help me to follow you with all my heart. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I put you in the driver's seat from this point forward. In Jesus' name, amen.